Have you ever been in the position of trying to share your faith with another person and you keep running up against language you don't want to use? You feel the heat start to rise in your cheeks and your brain is working on overdrive to wind its way through the best way to describe your beliefs. You analyze the words coming into your mind with fresh objectivity and feel the cognitive dissonance between the faith you're trying to share and the words in your toolbox. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. But it's hard to teach and preach this message of grace, love, service, and salvation if you're feeling hampered by stagnated language within your religious culture. Paul wrote, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Is it possible that sometimes the language we use, model, and teach is creating stumbling blocks for ourselves and our membership? We all have our own relationship to language and our spiritual communities. For my part, the lexicon of words linked to my faith journey comes from growing up Anglican and Evangelical and my connection to the Christadelphians as a young adult. There are notable moments in each setting where I felt that religious language has actually run contrary to the message of Christ. My youth group once attended a presentation by a visiting Evangelical preacher. Used to the more tempered language of the Anglican church, I was quite shocked by his fire and brimstone messaging. And even as a teenager, it was obvious to me that by emphasizing concepts of damnation and hell, he was using fear as a motivator to following Christ. And this didn't sit well with my understanding of God's love. A similar jarring feeling came over me when I first heard the Christadelphian term, the truth. If the Christadelphian with whom I was speaking had it, then did that make my relationship with God and understanding of my salvation the false? Christadelphian culture is my spiritual family now, and the Bible study, fellowship, care, and love that I have experienced have helped me grow in my walk with the Lord. I care about this community, and it's painful to see us perpetuate barriers in our path towards the Lord. So let's look at a few tendencies that could be re-examined within our Christadelphian cultural context. These include some linguistic trends, including words, phrases, and translation choices that if avoided, could help foster a more inclusive and welcoming environment so that we can boast in our salvation and share its blessings both in our community and beyond. Within our culture, there is often a divisive mentality of us versus them, those who are inside and those who are outside our faith. I'd like to highlight two ways that we encourage this and discuss a few drawbacks. First, many Christadelphians are trained in combative methodology of sharing faith, encouraged to focus more on what they don't believe than on what they do. Secondly, this often includes the common use of the word, the truth. So normalized is the term the truth in our culture that it appears neutral, when in fact, it can actually be quite alienating to those on the outside. Though used ubiquitously, to refer to the Bible's message of our hope in Christ, when used in conversation with other believers, it instantly can create a you have nothing to offer me dynamic. By implying that the truth is one definitive thing, it infers by negation that the other person has not got it. The term therefore comes across as arrogant and exclusionary and runs contrary to the wisdoms, the wisdom we're told in Proverbs, also quoted in James, that God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. We can be confident in our hope and biblical understanding, but it is important to use language that leaves room for other people's ideas and conversation, 
An alternative expression to the truth could be as simple as the message as I understand it. The truth is often part of a wider debate style conversation that we encourage in our members, including the youth that we train up and new members. The downside to using combative methods of argument with other Christians is that it separates us from potential connection. As followers of Christ diminish rapidly in numbers across denominations, finding other believers is indeed rare and much can be shared. A combative tone puts everyone on the defensive, encourages a moral high grounding positioning, and therefore preliminarily hijacks the potential of wonderful God-based relationships for people with future spouses and friends. In this world where belief in God is rare, wouldn't it be more productive to encourage each other to discover and relish the commonalities that we have with other Christians? Rather than encouraging a fear of the unknown, if we trust in God, we can remain secure in our faith and celebrate a mutual love of God. It says in the book of 1 John, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Not every detail of any Bible followers understanding of their faith in Christ and God is going to be exactly the same. So by emphasizing and seeing commonalities with other Christians, we can see and understand that we are all on a journey to salvation and working within the context that we know. When I first began attending a Christadelphian meeting every week, the presider would welcome me publicly and state that I was here to witness what we do. Well intended as a welcome, my non-membership status was publicly pointed out on a weekly basis. The term witness implies that the person is not part of what is happening, but is merely watching. While this may be true, what is to be gained by so overtly calling out this dichotomy of who is in and who is out? Jesus welcomed all to his table, as described in the book of Matthew, when he dined with Matthew the tax collector and a plethora of sinners regardless of their status. Every meeting is unique in the way it seeks to welcome guests but I would suggest leaving the well-meaning overtures as private interactions or sticking to generic group welcomes rather than public announcements pointing out individuals, particularly if the non-member has begun to attend regularly. Using the term everyone or anyone when it is not accurate is noticeable. For example, a presider may ask the room, would anyone like to offer a prayer for the wine this morning? When they're actually looking specifically for a baptized brother, in an instant, the personhood of any woman or unbaptized person present is negated. The norm for most Christadelphian meetings is to operate within gender segregated roles. That is to say, there are some areas of participation for which women in particular are excluded. Therefore, it's particularly obvious to the women in the group when the generalized term anyone is used in reference to requesting participation in a particular task from which they may not, in fact, participate. Encouraging specificity in this is a good gut check too. For example, if the idea of instead saying out loud, would any baptized brother like to offer a prayer for the wine this morning feels awkward, then perhaps it's a sign that this should be prayerfully and biblically rethought and investigated within a contemporary context. Furthermore, the word everyone is often used in the sentence, everyone has their role, 
which can be also be demeaning to those who feel that they cannot fulfill their gifts due to gendered restrictions. People are ever increasingly sensitive to patriarchal linguistic terms. In the recent past, in English, patriarchal linguistic strategies were more the norm, such as subsuming women's names under their husbands, as in Mr. and Mrs. John Smith, or using masculine terms as the universal, such as mankind. This is swiftly changing, as words such as policeman are replaced by police officer and the like. Within religious circles, therefore, it follows suit that a term such as brethren, an old English word rooted in the masculine concept of brothers, but meaning a whole body of believers, is no longer representative of members of all genders. Likewise, fraternal, another word rooted in the male term brother, is no longer an appropriate word to use to refer to fellowship between believers, rather than using such patriarchal language which comes across as very old-fashioned and out of touch, we can simply begin to replace them with more neutral terms such as members, believers, followers of Christ, all terms drawn from scripture and already in frequent use amongst many ecclesias. Binary language is another linguistic element of English that is beginning to fall out of use. Though this lingui linguistic categorization of humans into male and female is entrenched into many languages, including English, it is increasingly being rejected, particularly in situations where there is no actual foundational reason for this to be identified. By eliminating this, it allows for individuality and for room for those who may feel gender is irrelevant for a variety of reasons including physical, psychological, or philosophical. While unpacking this larger issue deserves its own article, uh, for our own purposes here, let's look at the use of the words sister and brother to refer to fellow baptized believers. Using these words not only compartmentalizes baptized people, but also continues to exclude non-baptized members, singling them out as not part of the club. Like reconsidering the terms brethren and fraternal, we may wish to move along towards non-gendered terms such as people, community, members, friends, and all the other more neutral options in this vein. In each case, we have to weigh the impact. Does it really take away something to remove the gendered specification of our relationship to one another? Is there another way to say this that is more inclusive? If we're hung up on being exclusive or the other words don't seem as palatable, we need to ask ourselves, why is it important to me to be exclusive? And is exclusivity something that Christ considers important? Scripture is the inspired word of God, but just because a word is in a particular English translation of the Bible doesn't mean it's appropriate for use in a contemporary setting. One Sunday morning, I witnessed the unfortunate choice of someone reading Leviticus 15 in its entirety. Not only was it not related to the talk given, its central subject of male sexuality and bodily cleanliness had every teenager in the room disappearing further into their seats in mortification every time words such as seed or issue was uttered. This was an unfortunate alienation of all the young people in the room and even had the adults snickering. Needless to say, 
no one was paying attention to the solemnity of the exhortation of bread and wine after that. While that is a humorous example, there can be more serious effects of poor choice of biblical passages. Current social practice dictates that we should be aware of trigger words or words that can cause harm. While this could seem trendy or worldly, in fact, it's biblical. God calls us to care for one another and put us together as a body so that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Words in the Bible that refer to colonial oppression, slavery, sexual assault and violence should never be chosen for public reading without extreme caution as to the purpose it serves. Such sensitive topics do exist in the Bible's pages, but speakers and presiders need to judge really carefully the merit of bringing them forward in a public setting to illustrate a point and ask themselves, would this passage be better served as a quiet and deep study in another context to serve a greater goal? The key rule of thumb while ex exercising trigger word caution is to think of the effect and imagine proactively that there are likely people in the audience, members and non-members alike, who have been affected by such actions. Even though concepts are in the Bible, we still have to look at the terms and words we're pulling from the passages with the utmost sensitivity to their application in the contemporary context. The words thou, art, and thy are no longer in regular use in the contemporary English language outside of the context of history and poetry. As such, the use of the King James Bible, or even the new King James Version, regularly used in Christadelphian meetings, is something that should be reconsidered. Many fans of this 1611 translation hail this version for its poetry, and rightly so. Meant to be read out loud, it echoes the structure and verse of the literary era of Shakespeare. Authorized by James I of England, and the sixth of Scotland, and created by a committee of 54 translators, they aimed for a simplicity of message and an inspiring loftiness of the English language. While once revered as the best English translation, it is now noted as problematic for two key linguistic reasons. First, it carries the biases of the cultural norms of the Elizabethan age when it was translated from downplaying descriptor words for early church women's roles to perpetuating the use of patriarchal words like brethren. Secondly, its poetic but archaic language is inaccessible to even many native English speakers and most definitely exclusionary to all English language students, therefore discourages a diversity of cultural backgrounds. With the increasing populations of Christadelphians coming from Middle Eastern and African countries, many of whom are learning the basics of English, we should use the most clear and understandable English Bible translations available. We should explore the beauty of biblical translations in other languages too, depending on the reader, using the skills of translators and not privileging the English version either. When reading in English, there are certainly moments to bring out the beautiful words of the King James Version, but persisting in its regular use reveals a blindness to the communal and inclusive purpose of Bible reading in a group setting in the first place. It's no secret that there's a decline in the Christadelphian body's overall membership, regular attendance and youth engagement, particularly in North America and in the British Commonwealth. This is not unique to Christadelphians. 
as the next generations of the general populations of these countries becomes exponentially disinterested in organized religion in general. Some scratch their heads and wonder what's going on. For others, it's a little more obvious. We are in danger of being out of touch. Out of touch language employed in a religious setting is notable. Our youth, particularly, are often more in tune than their elders in common and current use of terms, and they are noticing and listening. Sometimes the use of old terminology is purposefully and deliberately chosen for a reason. In other cases, old terminology is used indiscriminately with little consideration of impact within a contemporary context. This is when these word choices begin to reveal a level of ignorance, no matter how well-meaning, which ultimately contributes to a dissolution of trust between the body and its members. Some are able to maintain a relationship with God despite this, but not all. And it can indeed become a stumbling block for many, separating them from the hope they have in Christ. Whether questioning cultural Christadelphian terms, such as the truth and brethren, use of biblical translations, or remaining aware of biblical word choice for public use, these all reflect on our community. Our youth, in particular, are educated with increasingly inclusive language in mind, encouraged to use words that promote acceptance of others' differences and foster feelings of safety from primary school onwards. These new societal linguistic norms are rooted in greater social justice philosophies, which arguably bring us closer to biblical principles of love for one's neighbor. If our youth are hearing words at church that actually conflict with these positive societal shifts, then we risk sending our young people into the world conflicted. They may begin to separate their church lives from their real lives, which is not something that we would ever want to see. Moreover, if our youth mimic some of our old terminology and methods, they also could risk being labeled homophobic, fundamentalist, closed-minded, or worse. This is no burden that we should be putting on any of our young people, considering the Bible does not preach a message of judgment and division. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Is love using terms that make people uncomfortable, that seed division, or that create feelings of exclusion? If youth begin to recognize in our language harmful racial, cultural, or gender biases, they'll leave. It's not a fair choice when there's a better choice. If we identify that the basic biblical principles of love and care for others are the underlying motivations of some of these societal linguistic shifts, then we should also adopt them. In this way, we can ensure that Christ's message of love and salvation are included as the root of such positive societal change and even lead the way the world moves forward. In other words, thoughtfully adopting language that is inclusive actually brings us closer to the Bible's message. We can do this. The language choices made by Sunday morning exhorters, presiders, readers, those offering prayers, Sunday school teachers, and CYC instructors can keep in step with evolving societally accepted use when based in biblical principles of love and inclusion. It's our responsibility to hear one another, listen to ideas, educate ourselves, and make choices in our guidance, teaching, and delivery of the message in the most thoughtful, prayerful, and sensitive ways that we can. Let's help our young people 
and members to build up their linguistic toolboxes full of words that encourage, bring together, and foster love and acceptance so that instead of fumbling, we can all feel bolstered by and, by and proud of our faith communities and our ability to articulately express our faith to others.